dare say we're back again. Probably. Possibly. To Super Duperstitious? <laughs> Welcome to it. The podcast that happens to be about paranormal matters and the science behind them? Yeah, probably. I'm um Jake. Oh, hi, Jake. Who are you again? Wyatt. Oh, my name's Wyatt. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, it's a brand new digit. It, we're in yeah, the three digits we're, now. It's and like, we're rediscovering what it means so we're to still doing speak. This? I guess so. Huh. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's going to be good. We have, uh, we've knocked down 99 <laughs> episodes, some mini-sodes, some other special things. It's been a lot of cool stuff. We're going to keep going it with it now. Awesome. And, oh, yes. uh, yeah, I mean, obviously our big milestone episode was the last episode, episode 99. This is, uh, I don't know, something else. Basically, uh, who gives a shit? Exactly. <laughs> it's just episode 100. Um, and in this episode, we're basically going to just kind of look back over our 99 episodes, and we each chose some some topics we've covered over that time that we like and want to talk about again. Yes, indeed. We are entering our liminal period retrospective. Yes, and do you have any updates before we get going with that? Well, it isn't an update, but it is sort of kind of a news break. Dare we do that? And should we have a, a theme for it? Sure. I'll see what I can find for that. And yeah, go for it. So this could be filed under the ET. Huh? Uh, maybe category. If you have not yet heard... Fast radio bursts, or FRBs, have Fribs. fascinated astronomers ever since they were first observed in 2007. These are signals that travel through very deep space to arrive here. We're talking like extra galactic distances, so from without the Milky Way. And there is speculation they may, they may be indicative of extraterrestrial life. Vice recently reported... Um, on a new study by Cornell University where researchers have identified an FRB source uh, about half a billion light years from Earth wow. that pulses rather ominously on a regular 16-day cycle. Hmm. What do you think about that? Is it just slowly doing Morse code for YYZ? That's a... Rush song? Rush Limbaugh? Sing, sing yep, I uh, I think actually is YYZ. I think we've talked about that before on the podcast because I made probably a similar joke. We're a hundred episodes deep. We don't remember stuff anymore. That's all right. Plus, you it's know what? Start over again and redo everything. When you find a flavor done. of ice cream that's so delicious, sure you're having a second bowl of it. And yes, it maybe tastes the same, but god damn it, <laughs> it's chocolate. Or if you're boring, vanilla. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Or if you're a total straight-up freak, strawberry. <laughs> so, right, the study's abstract as gently edited for comprehension by yours truly. Reads as follows, essentially, fast radio bursts, FRBs, are bright millisecond-duration radio signals originating from extragalactic distances. Their exact origin, however, is unknown. Some FRB sources emit repeat bursts ruling out cataclysmic origins for those events. In other words, perhaps like a dying star or some large, you know, explosive event could send these out, but it would just be one big clap rather right. than repeats over time. So despite searches for predictable regularity in repeat burst arrival times on timescales from milliseconds to many days, these bursts have hitherto been observed to appear sporadically and though sometimes clustered without a regular pattern translation it's just too noisy and random for any kind of regularity to be made out so so far they've just been interesting packets of information to kind of gurgle up from deep space here however we report the detection of a roughly 16-day signal pattern from a repeating FRB detected by the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment Fast Radio Burst Project, or CHIMEFERB. Mm -hmm. In 28 bursts recorded from the 16th of September 2018 through the 30th of October 2019, we find that bursts arrive in a four-day window, with some cycles showing no bursts and some showing multiple bursts within CHIME's limited daily exposure. 
Our results suggest a mechanism for periodic modulation, either of the burst emission itself or through external amplification or absorption, and disfavor models invoking purely sporadic processes. In other words, there is something creating these signals at regular intervals. It's not clear exactly what it is, but it is too regular and too clear to be due to pure chance, Hmm. it sounds like. Uh, As described, that makes this the first known FRB to be on a repeating schedule. Scientists have a number of ideas as to what may be causing the regular cycle. The signal could be coming from an orbiting object, for instance, that only sends signals at a certain point in its orbit. It could also be coming from a binary star system made up of a massive star and a highly magnetized star, as outlined in a different study published on BioArchive, or I guess just Archive. They should call it Starchive. <laughs> uh, but I think we all know that it is probably just Matthew McConaughey screaming Murph from inside of a quantum tesseract to the Don't center of a supermassive Murph. black hole. Don't let me leave, Murph. Murph! <laughs> Solved and it. For him, for him, he's screaming it every five seconds, but for us, we're hearing it in 16-day intervals. Yes. Kind of cool, though. Interesting little tidbit. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's the, a, definitely a fun discovery regardless of the reason for it being the way exactly. it is. It's neat. And uh, the reason is probably not aliens. Exactly. But don't ask that of uh, whatever his name is, but the guy with the hair and the orange skin, not Trump, the other one, uh, yeah, on the History Channel. Whatever it is, Sukaloos or something? Sukaloos, yeah. Because you know what he'll say. Anyway, that's my little update. Cool. Kind of thing. Like break. it. I think we're almost ready to begin, but I happen to notice every once in a while you reaching off screen and pulling back a can <laughs> of uh, some certain degree of uh, recognizability in, in our eyes now, and I want to show you what I'm drinking today. Ho! That's looking like some dirt weed from here. Yes, this is Dirt Weed Double IPA by Four Phantoms Brewing. Allow me to <laughs> pick that up now. Sorry, I thought you were going to keep going. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to. I didn't know if you were going to say what you were drinking. Oh yes, and I am drinking a little more of the aforementioned Speed Wolf. If you listen to episode ninety nine, you will have heard our introductory um, sort of uh, entree into our new and improved super superstitious world. Now fueled by Four Phantoms Brewing. That's right. Now, Speed Wolf is a vanilla latte stout, and of their current yes, offerings, indeed. the one I was the most interested in trying and not one of the ones I received in the mail today. <laughs> we call this segment, Jake Looks a Gift Horse in the Mouth. Indeed. Um, what do you think of the dirt weed? Oh, it's a very yummy double IPA, and also pretty cool because over the winter, I stocked up exclusively on stouts and porters, so it's kind of nice to have some variety, especially as spring is happening. There you go. I will say one thing that I like very much about Four Phantoms, they change their labels a bit with the seasons, which is pretty cool. Yeah. They're all pretty kind of uh, D&D themed. Like, for example, Dirtweed has a tiefling reading a book, hanging out with an alligator, which is pretty fun. Hanging out, seems like in front of a fire, just in a cozy looking uh, little nook of some kind. They also have, uh, talking about seasonal changes, they have a spring IPA coming out in the near future called Thaw. Which I have yet to try, and I'm looking forward to very, very much. Mm-hmm. Currently, if you're anywhere in Massachusetts or Rhode Island, you should be able to find a shop carrying these fine brews. Otherwise, um, consider paying a visit to New England to check them out. Yeah. Specifically, East Hampton. But they don't have a tasting room yet, but we'll let you know when they do. Four Phantoms. Thanks. <laughs> Should we have a clear, a cleaner? Uh, Four phantoms. Drink it with your mouth. Drink it with your mouth. Four phantoms. Tastier than it is spooky. Actually, we could just work on slogans all it's, the time now. Yeah. Four phantoms. It's the beer that likes us. Four phantoms. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Four Phantoms, for helping uh, support this show. Everyone should support that brewery. With that said, as this is, I guess, technically an even-numbered episode, that does mean that I go first. Nope. <laughs> Damn it. Give you a chance. So I think we each have at least two topics that we chose of just things yes. we've covered before and want to talk about again. So I'll, I'll jump into my first one now, which is oh actually boy. something of a, um, a recent uh, sort of rehash of something we talked about not long ago. I want to rewind... Good. 
to the very recent past of episode 97, uh, in which I talked about a thing that is for sure not in the Grand Canyon. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. I uh, I want to revisit it because I happened to read just a tiny bit more from a stupid website that was taking the story seriously. Mm. A story, which for a refresher, if you haven't listened to that recently or haven't listened to it at all yet, the idea that an explorer who did not exist discovered a mishmash Eastern religious temple in the American Southwest. Uh, upon reading that this did particular, exist. yes, <laughs> just um, exactly. Uh, upon reading this particular uh, article, my mind split in half, and now mm. you all have to suffer with me. So I'm going to jump right into the copy from this website, which says the World Explorers Club decided to check out uh, check on this story by calling the Smithsonian in Washington D.C. They felt mm-hmm. there was little chance of getting any real information. They're mm-hmm. already starting out pretty skeptical of just the honesty of the Smithsonian. They're kind of like, we're going to follow up on this, but come on. We all know the answer here. Yeah. After speaking briefly to an operator, we were transferred to a Smithsonian staff archaeologist, and a woman's voice came on the phone and identified herself. I told her that I was investigating a story from a 1909 Phoenix newspaper article about the Smithsonian institutions having excavated rock-cut vaults in the Grand Canyon where Egyptian artifacts have been discovered, and whether the Smithsonian Institution could give me any more information on the subject. She said, the first thing I can tell you before we go any further is that no Egyptian artifacts of any kind have ever been found in North or South America. Therefore, Mm. I can tell you that the uh, Smithsonian Institute has never been involved in any such excavations. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was very helpful and polite, but in the end, knew nothing. Neither she nor anyone else with with whom I spoke could find any record of the discovery of either G.E. Kincaid and Professor S.A. Jordan. Mm. Well, it cannot be discounted that the entire story is an elaborate newspaper hoax. The fact that it was on the front page named the prestigious Smithsonian Institution, which he keeps calling it, it's the Smithsonian Institute, um, he hmm. keeps referring yeah. to it as that. Uh, and Institution. A, yeah. Uh, so the fact that it was on the front page, the fact that it named the Smithsonian, and the fact that it gave a highly detailed story that went on for several pages lends a great deal to its credibility. Mm-hmm. So an important note to all listeners, if someone writes a thing, especially if they write a lot of that thing, and especially if they name drop anything in their thing, that thing is real. This is how <laughs> fact checking works. Mm-hmm. Uh, they go on to say it is hard to believe such and a that, story. If I mean, if you're asking me, is a fact. Exactly. Uh, they go on to say it is hard to believe such a story could have come out of thin air. Which I want to say, obviously, that's true. It's much easier to believe that the entire confluence of deeply improbable and even <laughs> geologically impossible points within the story are all true than to believe that mm-hmm. someone just pulled it out of their ass. Because as we know, imaginations are limited and only informed by reality. Exactly. They say, if the story is true, it would radically change the current view that there was no transoceanic contact in pre-Columbian times and that all American Indians on both continents are descended from Ice Age explorers who came across the Bering Strait. Excuse me? Yeah, they're just saying that all of what we think we know isn't true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is the idea that ancient Egyptians came to the Arizona area in the ancient past so objectionable and preposterous that it must be covered up? Perhaps the Smithsonian <laughs> Institution is more in- interested in maintaining the status quo than rocking the boat with astonishing new discoveries that overturned previously accepted academic teachings. This is what you call... A fully loaded sandwich. <laughs> Every single sentence is so loaded. Uh-huh. Are we meant to believe that this isn't true simply because all the facts are there and people just don't want to say it's true? <laughs> because it is? That's <laughs> exactly how it reads. Um, Go on. So I want to reiterate, reiterate a point we've made before, which is that archaeology and historical research in general thrives on finding new shit. And if there is mm-hmm. any credible evidence for something truly groundbreaking, there would be enough. a race to get it, the info out there as quickly as possible and get people excited about it. It would not be a cover-up. It would be like, oh, shit, we found a thing that will get people to actually give a shit about exactly. history. we got to tell them. Can you imagine the paradigm-shattering, earthquaking sensation of finding something like this for real? Yeah. It would be oh my God. all anyone would be hearing about for... As long as the rest as, of time, yeah, 1909 through now, this would be like the biggest thing that would be found. news forever. Yes, uh, they go on still. Uh, historian and linguist Carl Hart, editor of World Explorer, then obtained a hiker's map of the Grand Canyon from a bookstore in Chicago. Poring over the map, we were amazed to see that much of the area on the north side of the canyon has Egyptian names. 
The area around 94 Mile Creek and Trinity Creek had areas, rock formations apparently, with names like Tower of Set, Tower of Ra, Horus Temple, Osiris Temple, and Isis Temple. In the Haunted Canyon area were such names as the Cheops Pyramid, the Buddha Cloister, Buddha Temple, Manu Temple, and Shiva Temple. Was there any relationship between these places and the alleged Egyptian discoveries in the Grand Canyon? <laughs> or just spitballing here, could it be possible that when white people saw these things for the first time, <laughs> they did the white people thing they always do and named those things after other things they had heard of or seen before? Exactly. <laughs> nah, it makes way more sense that the names given by white people to landmarks in areas they invaded are 100% accurate descriptions of those landmarks' history. The yes. only reason it could have a name like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Informed by real Egyptians. Yes. <laughs> this entire area with the Egyptian and Hindu place names in the Grand Canyon is a forbidden zone. No one is allowed into this mm. large area. We can only conclude that this was the area where the vaults were located. Mm-hmm. Yet today, this area is curiously off limits to all hikers and even in large part, park personnel. We called a state archaeologist at the Grand Canyon and were told that the early explorers had just liked Hindu and Egyptian names but that it was true that this area was off-limits to hikers or other visitors because of dangerous caves. (laughs) I believe that the discerning reader will see that if only a small part of the Smithsonian Gate evidence is true, then our most hallowed archaeological institution has been actively involved in suppressing evidence for advanced American cultures, evidence for for ancient voyages of uh, various cultures to North America, evidence for anomalistic giants and other oddball artifacts, and evidence that tends to disprove the official dogma that is now the history of North America. Oh, my God. The Smithsonian's uh, Board of Regents still refuses to open its meetings to the news media or the public. If Americans were ever allowed inside the nation's attic, as the Smithsonian has been called, what skeletons might they find? Well, probably skeletons of mummified people. And others. <laughs> so that well, is a, geez. that's a selection from that particular article about stuff. I'll link to it begrudgingly if you want to read more. My eyes are bleeding. I see the ears are too, so I can't really recommend people check <laughs> it out themselves. But if you want to, it's Just there. Ears. Um, that's crazy. I mean, I guess it's kind of sweet in a weird way because it's like a person throwing a tantrum because their dreams aren't being legitimized or validated. <laughs> Uh huh. Um, and you know, we've all been there. I've been there. I know when I was like eight or nine, maybe Santa Claus not real. What? Come on. Wait, what? You can't be do. Oh, uh, Jake, come back. Um, Where are you going? Oh, oh no! Oh no! <laughs> yeah, that's a ridiculous article. Um, but you know. Stand your ground, guys. If this is all really actually true, my goodness. <laughs> well, we have egg on our faces. <laughs> we will have so much ancient Egyptian egg <laughs> all over our very much in the new world American faces. <laughs> um, Ow. But yeah, wow. That is a good one. What you got? I have. Uh, I was thinking about episode 66, Timeless Cool. Mm. in which I talked about the ancient Egyptian pyramids. Speaking of Egyptian stuff. <laughs> yeah, this actually dovetails pretty well. Uh, yeah, it does. Um, this is a rare case where we didn't really discuss at all what we were going to talk at about in all. advance. And so. we had, if I'm not mistaken, a whole 99 separate episodes <laughs> to draw from. Yep. Um, and I also think we, also think we kept it uh, totally open to using anyone's topics, not just our oh, own. Yeah. We could use each other's. Oh, absolutely. So this is just that super superstitious magic. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, so for today, my first topic is going to be a little more of history's mysteries. And I'm going to take us on a little tour of Saxe Huaman, a.k.a. Sexy Woman, a.k.a. <laughs> one of the greatest ever how-to-do-dats from history. <laughs> So, have you heard of this already, Jake? No, I don't think I have. This Incan ruin? Well, let me tell you all about it. So, Saxe Waman, possibly from Quechua language, is a stone citadel on the northern outskirts of the city of Cusco, Peru, Mm. uh, which, as we all know, is the historic capital of the Inca Empire. Um, 
it is fascinating because workers were evidently able to so carefully carve the boulders, large, large, large boulders used in its construction, that they were able to fit them together almost perfectly and without the need for mortar. Damn. So these stones interlock. You can look up images online. They are like puzzle pieces, practically. They're, they're so perfectly fit together. And this has led to some speculation that the workers used some kind of lost miraculous technology or, mm. you know, what have you to essentially soften the rocks. I'll talk about that a little later, but I just kind of wanted to put that all up front. Yeah. You know, it's not just some simple ruin. It is a masterwork that has inspired some fanciful imagining. So located at an altitude of 3,701 meters on a steep hill that overlooks the city, this fortified complex has a wide view of the valley to the southeast. Archaeological studies considering collections of pottery at Saxe Huaman indicate that the earliest occupation of the hilltop dates to about 900 current era, so when the area was occupied by the uh, Kilka culture, I'm maybe mispronouncing that, uh, the complex was later expanded and added to by the Inca from the 13th century on. So after the Battle of Cajamarca, or Cajamarca, oh my god, during the <laughs> Spanish conquest of the Inca, Francisco Pizarro sent Martin Bueno, oh yeah, Martin Bueno, Bueno, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> And two other Spaniards to do Buino. Buino, uh, to do what folks at that time did best. Look for gold. Take all of the gold and silver from mm. the indigenous peoples. <laughs> Great. Um, yes, indeed. So after they'd plundered just everything, they finally entered Cusco, and uh, Francisco's brother Pedro described what they found. Quote, on top of a hill, the Inca had a very strong fort surrounded with masonry walls of stones and having two very high round towers. And in the lower part of this wall, there were stones so large and thick that it seemed impossible that human hands could have set them in place. They were so close together and so well fitted that the point of a pin could not have been inserted into one of the joints. The whole fortress was built up in terraces and flat spaces. The numerous rooms were filled with arms, lances, arrows, darts, clubs, bucklers, and large oblong shields. There were many morions, which were a kind of helmet. There were also certain stretchers in which the lords traveled, as in litters. So these are the kind of things that people get carried around inside of, essentially. Mm. So the best-known zone of Sacsayhuaman includes its great plaza and its adjacent three massive terrace walls. The stones used in the construction of these terraces are among the largest used in any building in pre-Hispanic America, and they display a precision of fitting, as I've mentioned now a million times, that is unmatched in the Americas. Stones are so closely spaced that a single piece of paper will not fit between many of them. Wow. And this precision, combined with the rounded corners of the blocks, the variety of their interlocking shapes, and the way the walls lean inward is thought to have helped the ruins survive devastating earthquakes in Cusco. The longest of the three walls is about 400 meters, and each is about 6 meters tall. So these are quite substantial yeah. in size. The estimated volume of the stone is over 6,000 cubic meters. Mm -hmm. And estimates for the weight of the largest block, so this is largest single block, vary from 128 to almost 200 tons. Jeez. So following the siege of Cusco, the Spaniards began to use Sacsayhuaman as a source of stones for building Spanish Cusco. And within a few years, they had taken apart and demolished much of the complex. The site was destroyed block by block to build this new sort of area, including governmental and religious buildings, um, as well as some of the houses for the wealthiest Spaniards occupying that area. So today, only the stones that were too large to be easily moved remain at the site. So we can get into theories about construction. The fanciful first, because, of course. Why not? So if you're anything less than careful in searching for how sexy woman was made, you will be <laughs> piped almost immediately to any one of a slew of pages roughly equivalent to ancientcode.com. Oh, boy. With headlines like, is it possible that thousands of years ago, ancient cultures possessed a now-lost technology that allowed them to soften stone? 
According to numerous researchers, the answer is yes. <laughs> oh, boy. So according to a number of quote-unquote researchers like Jan Peter de Jong and Christopher, Yor- Christopher Jordan, Christopher Jordan <laughs> and Jesus Gamara, some of the granite walls in Cusco are the ultimate evidence that ancient cultures managed to heat different stones at very high temperature. This so-called unknown process vitrified the surface of the blocks, essentially made them into a liquid, turning them into giant glassy and smooth structures. Based on these and other observations, Yang, Jordan, and Gamara, or Jong maybe, conclude that ancient man possessed an advanced device which allowed them to melt stone blocks, which were then placed into position and allowed to cool down next to hard jigsaw polygonal blocks that were already in place, forming an an extraordinary puzzle that defies rational understanding today. (laughs) I mean... Yeah, you look at, I'm looking at just a cool uh, panoramic shot of one of these big walls and the rocks look very very cool and the and the jigsaw way they put together is awesome. And the fact that things of uh tessellating shapes can fit together is beyond all comprehension. It simply defies rational understanding. <laughs> the end product, perfectly molded stone, would remain fixed against other stones in a nearly perfect manner giving an impression as if these megaliths stones <laughs> were melted into position. Megaliths is already a term for big rock. <laughs> Once fixed, these stones were so precisely placed that not a single sheet of paper could fit in between them, which is everyone's favorite take-home message about all this. People say the same exact thing about the Great Pyramid, too. Oh, did they? Yeah. Sheet of paper, the international <laughs> test for how tightly fit together is this thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and now we have a factful theory. In order to complete this massive project, the fact is, the Inca simply drafted thousands of laborers, 20,000 or more, under their well-established system of extracting both goods and labor from peoples they conquered. So working in a system of rotation, 6,000 were given quarrying duties while another 4,000 dug trenches and laid the foundations. The walls of the fortress were probably built in vertical sections, with each section being the responsibility of one ethnic labor group. Um, Rather than cooking or otherwise magically melting the stones, the Incas were simply master stonemasons. Huge blocks were quarried and shaped using nothing more than harder stones and bronze tools. And, as it turns out, marks left on the stone blocks indicate that they were mostly pounded into shape rather than cut. So you can imagine just smashing rocks until they do what you want. Fit the bill. Yeah. yeah. It's it's one of the most fundamental human experiences. Tried and true. I tell you. But it takes a master to get this thing built. I, I, I could not smash rocks enough to uh, to build Saksai Huan Man myself. But you and I together, oh, watch out. Look out. Um, so blocks were moved using ropes, logs, poles, levers, and earthen ramps. And telltale marks can still be seen on some blocks. Um, Some stones still have nodes protruding from them or indentations, which were used to help workers grip the stone as they sort of just muscled them along. The suggestion that rocks were roughly hewn in the quarries and then worked on again at their destination is also clearly supported by unfinished examples left at quarries and on various routes to building sites. The smooth finished surface was produced using grinding stones and sand. So experimental archaeology has apparently demonstrated that it was much quicker than scholars had previously thought to prepare and dress these stones used by the Incas. Even so, it would have taken many months to produce a single wall. So huge undertaking, but Mm. doable if you have literally 20,000 people working around the clock doing nothing (laughs) else than carving out giant-ass stones (laughs) and dragging them into place. Turns out. Yeah, um, as it works out when you have that many people doing a thing, it gets done. Yeah, you know, all it takes is a village of 20,000 people, as they always say. <laughs> um, so yeah, there you have it. To this day, Peruvians celebrate Inti Remi, the annual Inca festival of the winter solstice and New Year near Sacsayhuaman on the 24th of June. Another important festival is, oh man, that's a tough word. Rarachikui? Oh my god. W-A-R-A-C-H-I-K-U-Y. 
Not sure. Held annually on the third Sunday of September. And, go figure, some people from Cusco use the large field within the walls of the complex for jogging, tai chi, (laughs) and other athletic activities. And that's it. Gotta love a good ancient aliens style conspiracy thing. Indeed. It's, we've talked about this before too, which is that whenever there's some kind of ancient engineering feat, people are so quick to dismiss it as being impossible. It's just like erasure of all the skill of people in the past and often, yeah, non-white people in the past. It's like, oh yeah, they could never have done this on their own. It's like, fuck you, man. Like they did it. Right. They did it. They figured it out. And it really speaks to the lack of confidence in human ability that mm-hmm. so many people embrace those theories. It's just too bad. It is. Because people in the past did some fucking yeah. cool shit. Right. Like technology has advanced a whole lot in a very short time and we are able to do things now we never could have dreamed of. But then we take for granted how much stuff people still dreamed of and did even with, without this kind of technology at their disposal. That's the thing, too. It kind of speaks to the degree to which people now just value technology over craftsmanship. Like, mm-hmm. it's amazing what artisan-level craftspeople can accomplish without any complex tools or, you know, really any computational interface or what have you. Like, specifically, computers. Yeah. Um, I feel like that is that is a thing that, writ large, is uh, dying out very rapidly, unfortunately. Welcome to the new podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Also, not for, uh, this is not relevant, but I do want to note that for a good chunk of this particular segment, you, the position of the computer and your hand and everything has made it so that your face is just a fist with a beard and eyebrows. I've reached my final form. (laughs) (laughs) With a cord coming out of the center of it. (laughs) I have to now see this on the Skype video. (laughs) Don't worry, I've taken pictures. Oh, this, like this? I'll put them on Instagram. Yep. That's the one. (laughs) (laughs) you see my eyebrows moving i sure do that's awesome but yes in addition to talking about the science behind a lot of strange spooky unexplained things we also like to talk about the history behind stuff and why you gotta give more credit where it's due to people who existed yes indeed and not just pretend like uh europe is the be all and end all of what human life can be and always has been (laughs) because if that were true oh god (laughs) help me but yes. I can't believe how closely our things fit together just by chance. I would say you That's could what not she fit, said. You could we <laughs> I was gonna say you couldn't fit a piece of paper between our two segments, but never mind. Oh boy. As it goes. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh before we jump into yours, dare we Jump into the NCAA device. Yeah, it got so comfortable last time we used it for the whole entire 99th episode. I think it'll be very easy to just go ahead and let's, let's just plug it right in now. Wow. It's oh, actually yeah. plugging itself into That's me. actually true. Just talking about it made it happen. The NCAA device is an uh, uh, arcane computer we've had for about a year now, and we added on a function at some point last year whereby we're able to calculate using our brains and the computer's power what each of our Patreon patrons needs to be on the lookout for in terms of cryptids and creatures across the world. We call this function PANDER, which of course stands for the Patron Appreciation Neural Die for Evaluation of Risk. And uh, yeah, we basically just allow the computer to do its thing. We'll report what we sort of see in our own headspace. And yes. uh, I think today we can focus in on Patron J.S. Tesla, Tesla, who sounds like a highly charged individual. Fan of alternating current, I imagine. Mm-hmm. All right, I'll focus in here and see what Let's comes up. See. And it is... Quilebre. Quilebre? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Or Quilebre. <laughs> it's the Asturian or Cantabrian uh, pronunciation, depending. Anyway, it's a giant winged serpent dragon of the Asturian and Cantabrian mythology. So any kind of dragony, snaky thing, eh, you don't want that. Stay away from big worms, basically. Yes. Uh, especially if you're near a cave, if you're near treasure, <laughs> um, this thing may be guarding it. Tends to keep Xanus and Anhanas as prisoners. 
Um, yeah. So quillebrays oh, are immortal, but uh, they news. do grow old as time goes on, and their scales become harder and harder to penetrate. Uh, their bat wings, they have, uh, what, uh, <laughs> that doesn't work. Also, bat wings are a thing they have. Um, they grow in their bodies, which may be oh, yeah, on that the inside. Oh, yeah, seem like a thing that makes sense or, uh, or would be useful to them, but that's what we're getting from the machine. Bat wings grow in their bodies. Make it the that way. will. I will say there's some good news. They don't usually move. The bad news is when they do it, it is in order to eat cattle and people. <laughs> yep. So if you see a Quillebra and it's not moving, you're probably good. But if it starts to move, you are most certainly On in trouble. Yeah. Which, speaking of menus, one way to kill one of these beasts is to give him as a meal a red hot stone or bread full of pins, which are two things that could probably be made pretty quickly if you have yeah. to and if you're worried you could just keep either or both of those on your person at all times so if you that's have true. some kind of means of keeping a stone red hot as you go about your business that would be helpful <laughs> or just uh you know just jab a bunch of pins into a loaf of bread and keep it in your pocket uh, the whole loaf and you'll probably be all set if it does start drooling because it wants to eat you i've heard tell because of this computer that it spit <laughs> may turn into a magic stone which heals many diseases which i mean you probably could have figured that out just from hearing the name but that's the thing so if you're able to get it hungry to eat you and then feed it a red hot stone and or pin bread it's gonna be kind of a double win for you where you'll get both uh not eaten and a magic stone which will allow you to basically stop this whole coronavirus thing from going on yes so yeah do that <laughs> Stay away from this thing we can't pronounce. And thank you, thank you for so much the show. for your support. We really appreciate it. We appreciate you, and we love you. All right, we Jake. Do? Let me unplug this thing first, actually, and then yeah, just probably a good idea. All right, here All we go. Right. <clears throat> okay. If anyone else wants to uh, find out what creature they need to look out for, uh, the easiest way to do that is to join our Patreon. Patreon.com/slash/superduperstitious. For as low as a dollar a month, you can be entered into our little uh, kind of uh, lottery thing to be the next person to have your creature calculated. And there are many other perks as well, mm -hmm. but we'll leave that to you to find out on the site, because I don't want to list them off now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> on to more stuff. Hell yeah. So, yeah, for my other segment that I chose for today, we're doing just topics we wanted to cover again. Not necessarily favorite topics, but in this case, I chose a favorite topic. And when it comes to favorite topics we've covered since the start of this here pod back in 2017, I don't think any longtime listeners will be remotely surprised when I want to talk yet again about friggin' crawlers. Oh, Which has yes. actually been a little while since I've done that, so I feel justified in pulling it back out again. You're gross. Um, Your entree into that uh, feels very much like mine for my next thing. And so <laughs> I was afraid you were about to say it or uh, kind of excited, to be honest. But nope. Carry on. Okay. So, yeah, when I refer to crawlers, I mean ghouls, flesh gates, uh, <laughs> the rakes. Uh, Jake, or, Jake or me. Yep. Either of us. Whatever name you want to give to horrific, pale, hairless humanoid creatures stalking <laughs> the night, usually on all fours. So us. Um, other than facial hair. Yeah. And as always, I love me a good first person account. So oh boy, I've got oh one boy. here by user Small Ginger Ninja, who uh, the name sounds really familiar. Mm. I feel like you maybe heard from them somewhere else before. I checked. I was going to say that strangely felt familiar it to me too. Did too. Maybe they commented. On, I just looked at like her posts and didn't see any posts that were familiar. But maybe a comment on another thread that we read could be. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Again, hundred episodes. Hard to remember what has or hasn't come up, but that sounds familiar. It may have been medium or large Ginger Ninja, too. <laughs> That's true. I could think of regular size Rudy from Bob's Burgers. <laughs> Why do they call you that? I mean, just look at me. <laughs> In any case, this post is called Glowing Eyes. <laughs> so here it goes. Um, they say, to provide some context, this took place about a year ago. More accurately, October slash November of last year, near my home in Michigan. So I think based on when it was posted, this is probably places the story in autumn of 2018, I believe. Mm. Uh, for reference, I'm about an hour away from Detroit. It used to be a small town that's become more densely populated over the last decade. Not Detroit, the place she lives. Uh, with a lot more hustle and bustle. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. However, where I live, I'm at least one mile away in all directions from any commercial zones or more modernized residential areas that tend to be a bit more congested. It's one of the last stretches of uh, slow, old farm country in the town that hasn't been overrun with cookie-cutter subdivisions. Uh, my house was built in the 70s by my grandfather, with whom I still reside, along with my husband, daughter, and aunt. We are his caretakers while we save up slash finish school to afford our own home. Mm-hmm. There's a sizable lot of um, lot or three of land between our house and our neighbors on either side. might be worth mentioning that growing up, my friends always said my house looked like a, a house you'd see in a horror film due to it sitting among dense trees. Hmm. Some of the trees have been cut down to prepare for more houses, but fortunately for us, the builders violated multiple codes, I guess, so now there's just a bit of overgrown, expansive field. Anyway, I'm rambling. This is just setting up what the surroundings are for where the story takes place, I guess is why she's getting into that. But uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, So the trees are cut down, um, and then stuff started to grow in there, as tends to happen, due to forest succession. Mm-hmm. So it was an autumn Sunday evening, and the sun had been down for a bit. Most of the leaves had fallen by now, but I recall it being an unusually warm night for that time of year. Everyone in my house was winding down for the night and preparing for the work-slash-school week. I say around 10.30, I decided to let my dogs out one last time before turning in for the night. So she let the dogs out. <laughs> now we finally know. <laughs> I go to open our back door, which is a giant glass sliding door wall window. Mm-hmm. Weird description of a sliding glass door. And my <laughs> dogs are right at my feet behind me, ready to bust out the door as soon as it opens wide enough. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I didn't let them because I guarantee if they saw what I briefly did, they would have both charged toward it and it would have been just bad news bears i open the door and where the edge of our yard ends and the brushy field begins keep in mind this brush is just a bit taller than i am i am five feet tall exactly a pale grayish figure is standing amid the brush at the edge of the yard Mm -hmm. Uh, the only reason i noticed in the first place is because the noise my door made seemed to have startled it so it made noise in the dry fallen leaves which then caused me to direct my attention towards the noise which is what i saw living robot I think so. <laughs> Cause leads to effect, and that yes. is what happened, and now I'm describing it. Uh, also, actually, a little bit of purred happily in there, too, maybe. Yes, yes, uh, a little purred happily. Which is when I saw it fleetingly duck down and take off further into the field behind my house. It's difficult to describe, but due to what I saw, being familiar with coyotes, feral cats, and other animals I'm used to seeing around the property... It had remarkably human characteristics, Mm. given its height and how it crouched over before moving in bound-like strides into the field. Mm -hmm. That's another thing I noticed, was that it didn't make the sound of what a human would, or any animal that is native to this area for that matter, uh, that it would make in retreat. The pace wasn't quick, multiple steps like a human, deer, or coyote. They were like Mm. lengthy, bounding strides. So it might have been you. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) And the sound it made Mm -hmm. hitting the ground had weight to it. (laughs) The tread was not light. I guess this is what I'm trying to say. It sounded big. It kind of took my breath away, and I was left startled, but due to what I did see, believing what I saw to bear a resemblance to a human, I sheepishly called out, Hello? Is someone out mm-hmm. here? Mm-hmm. I'm still standing at my doorway, kind of frozen in mild fear. I yell again, Hello? This time a bit more confident and enunciated. I guess, Hello? Hello? Uh, this captures the attention of my husband and my aunt. My husband <laughs> comes downstairs to see what I was yelling outside. Hello. Uh, see why I was yelling outside, as did my aunt. I explained to both of them, kind of frantically, what I had just witnessed. My aunt was spooked, and my husband went upstairs to get a flashlight and his air rifle. Um, mm, good. Keep us safe. Uh, she had a description saying how she didn't like the idea of him hurting animals. It didn't let him own a real gun, and that's why he had an air rifle uh, instead. I see. Um, my husband, my husband and I both go outside into the backyard, him with the rifle and light, and we begin scanning a pitch black overgrown field to no avail at first. Hello? 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 <laughs> Hello? Hello. <laughs> Maybe after five minutes of looking, my husband hops on top of a sedan that's parked outside to get a better view of the field or any movement through the bush, uh, through the brush, and continues looking. Uh, his gaze stops in one particular direction, though. He hops down and quietly approaches me in the yard and points into the direction of what he was looking at. About 20 yards into the field, in the direction closer toward the back of my neighbor's property, there are two glowing orange-red eyes looking right at us through the brush, somewhat Mm. low to the ground. Uh, When he gets me to see what he's seeing, he decides to shoot in the general direction of this thing to maybe startle it a bit to see how it moves. Right. He did this several times and it didn't flinch. Then he decided he would try to aim his fire directly at it to get a reaction, and he's a damn good shot. 
He hits it in what I imagine to be the face, and it sort of jumps up, and when it landed, it was a solid sounding thud against the ground. All the while, it did not break its gaze on us. Ooh. After hitting the ground, it moved further back into the field without running away necessarily. It kept eye contact with us the entire time, almost as if it was walking backward, not once averting its gaze. It eventually moved far enough back that we both had to jump onto the car to still be able to see it. Spooky. After several minutes of this, it had moved beyond our visual, so we hopped down and went inside. It's worth mentioning that there wasn't any sort of light that would have caused reflective eyes, aside from the moon, which wasn't even full and it was very dark. We purposely kept our lights off and the eyes looked as though they weren't even reflecting light, but more so emitting it. Mm. Uh, do with this what you will, but uh, I and my husband both know what we saw, and given the frequency and variety of animals we see normally otherwise, this was significantly different than what we see. We have deer, coyotes, foxes, possums, raccoons, skunks, and feral cats, all of which we are very familiar with. We have not seen anything like this prior to or since this time, although we do hear strange noises and sounds in the field and the woods from time to time at night. My husband has actually woken me up in the middle of the night to listen to some strange moans and wailing, spelled like harpooning sea mammals, but that hasn't (laughs) happened since earlier this year. I felt it was valuable to share in the sense that not all encounters are ones where whatever it is is inherently malevolent or predatory in pursuit of humans. It was just an experience that struck me as particularly odd. Before anyone says anything, as I know the legend and folklore of this cryptid has Michigan origins, no, it was not the Dogman, LOL. (laughs) Unless Dogman has a human face, then slap the nickels out of my pockets and call me a liar. By George, it might be Dogman. Really? They wrote that? They did write that. (laughs) Wowzers. So yeah, this woman saw a strange thing, and her husband shot at the face with an airsoft (laughs) gun, and it... Didn't really care and just slowly Moon backed away. away. Yeah. Did the uh, Homer into the bushes kind of uh, slide, <laughs> and uh, that was that. Wow, as as is often the case with these kinds of stories, if true, good lord. Mm-hmm. And you got to figure too, there must have been a light source. I don't know what creature would ever benefit from producing light from inside of its body in that way that lives Especially on the in its eyes, because that would just in its distract eyes? from being... A, the eyeballs are meant to catch light, not give it off. Not give it off, exactly. Um, so anytime you see what appears to be glowing eyes, it's always a reflection of the inside of the eyeball. Mm-hmm. More often than not, a membrane we bring up a lot on the show called the tapetum lucidum. lucidum. It comes up so often because people so frequently like to cite glowing eyes as signs of something being otherworldly. Which, to be fair, it does seem like the eyes are glowing. They do give off a shiny light, mm-hmm. but it is simply reflective. Yes. But yeah, wow. Well, spooky. Surprised that they just went back inside. I <laughs> uh, would be freaked out forever, as usual, <laughs> if I were <laughs> yep. to experience this. And uh, yeah, wow. Very it's spooky. just interesting hearing so many different encounters of stuff like this and people just saying, right. oh, you know, I, I've seen every animal that lives in the area and this didn't look like right. it. And the only thing that can really make sense is the idea of seeing something living there that just isn't what you expect to see normally. So we've mentioned the idea of like, Oh, I don't know, coyotes with mange right. or even bears right. with mange and how an animal in a different context than you're used to suddenly looks very, very different and unsettling and what that could mean. And also their behavior can change, too, if they're actually that sick. And that could have an effect on, True. you know, why it might not be afraid of humans the way it normally would be. Right. One cool thing I did see that I hadn't previously heard about was the suggestion by user uh, Brad Davery or Brad D. Avery that at least in some cases, one possible explanation for crawler sightings is uh, this. Let me play you this video. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. I don't like this already. So here's something on the ground. Oh, it's a sloth. Yeah. Just a little sloth just walking across a path at nighttime. Aw. Uh, but you see that movement, and you don't know what to expect before it happens, and it is I really would be unnatural. Horrified. And it really fits the bill for... Crawler, Lauren is, it does. Lauren is enjoying the adorability of the sloth walking. It is um, cute, although it is undeniably creepy. Yes. It is not a movement you expect to see normally, and so it is kind of a weird experience. But that's also, you know, that can explain maybe some sightings, since crawlers have been reported all over the world. Obviously, this particular description would only make sense in the neotropics, 
But right. it's at least an illustration of the idea that seeing an ordinary animal in an atypical context is weird. Very true. I will say, as I think more and more about their scenario, why not look for tracks? Yeah, I, I expected she the story to go on to be heavily. that oh, they, they watched it go across the field like that. That Why not then in the daylight go follow the path they saw it take and see if they could figure out what yeah, totally. went through there. But, you know, who knows? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm wondering if I should provide an introduction to my next topic or just jump right on into this story as a means of introduction. I'll leave it up to you. Scott Martin and his family were traveling home by taxi from Stoneley on Tuesday, February the 14th at about 10.30 p.m. This is back in 2012. Mm -hmm. When they saw a mysterious dark figure with no features dart across the road in front of them before leaping 15 feet (gasps) over a roadside bank as they approached Nesquit College on the Ewell Bypass. Spooked by their seemingly supernatural experience, the couple's four-year-old son, Sonny, was too scared to sleep in his own... <laughs> Wait, I need to... I need yes? To digest that information. Their son's name was Sonny. S-O-N-N-Y. All right. <laughs> what would you like to name your child, a human being that you have created that will live an entire life of hopefully more than 75 years? Sonny. <laughs> of the boy family <laughs> was too scared to sleep in his o- on his own that night while the petrified taxi driver admitted he didn't want to drive back alone. Mr. Martin, 40 years of age, the manager of a building company who lives in Blue Cedars on, in Banstead, said, We were driving down the Ewell Bypass and saw a man on the other side of the road. We didn't pay much attention until he started crossing over to our side of the road. The next thing, he jumped over the center fencing in the road and ran across our two lanes. On the side of our road, 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 (laughs) is a bank easily 15 feet in height, and this figure crossed our road, climbed this bank, and was gone from sight, all in about two seconds. All four of us were baffled and voiced our sighting straight away with the same detail. A dark figure with no real features, but fast in movement, with an ease of hurtling obstacles I've never seen. My last image was of him going through the bushes at the top of the bank. Mm -hmm. Mr. Martin said the driver of the taxi shared his fears as the mysterious figure made off. Quote, I'm not usually one to be freaked out by these sightings, but the cab driver was petrified, he said. He didn't want to drive back alone. I'm honestly baffled by this sighting, and we are intrigued by it because it was so real but so strange. His wife, Sasha, 37, who is an accountant, added, It was more that someone was trying to cross the road of a dual carriageway that was weird. My little boy was really freaked out. (laughs) The family has since likened the figure to the legendary Spring Heel Jack. Oh, I'm so glad. A mysterious dark figure reported to be responsible for a string of attacks in the 1800s. <laughs> I wonder known... if he was ever going to come back. Oh, he's back, baby. And known for his ability to leap great heights, first sighted in Wandsworth in 1837, Mary Stevens was walking home alone. Or, sorry, walking home. Oh, my God. Mary Stevens was walking home <laughs> along Lavender Hill when a tall figure leapt out, grabbing her and firmly kissing her Mm. before releasing her with a loud laugh ha ha (laughs) leaping high into the air and disappearing (laughs) sightings continued across victorian london others describing jack's red flaming eyes and claws so much so that in 1938 the lord mayor of london declared him a public nuisance the worst thing you could possibly be at the time Uh uh-huh leading one vigilante group to attempt to capture him, albeit unsuccessfully. However, there had been no reported sightings in Epsom and Yule. The last sighting recorded in Birmingham in 1986, which I should look up. Mr. Martin added, quote, It was something we all saw, and it wasn't imagination. I'm quite a sensible man, but I have never seen anything move that quickly across the road and not been startled by the fact that we were driving toward him. It's the first time we have ever seen anything like this. If it was a burglar, it is the fastest I had ever seen anyone run. That's the only other explanation. 
but it was just too quick, unquote. Both Surrey Police and Nescott College confirmed they had received no reports of unusual incidents or sightings in the area that night. And no one heard the phrase, ha ha, exactly. anywhere at the time. So I think I speak for all of us when I say Sprinkle Jack is the best. And while we <laughs> yes. mostly covered all there is to cover about the old SHJ, <laughs> um, I found one other variation on the theme. Um, Jake, have you heard of Peric, the Spring Man of Prague? I don't believe I have. This is just a quick little tidbit, right. but he's basically another very spring-heeled Jack-style character who emerged during World War II. Mm. The so-called Springer was said to leap out from shadowy alleys and startle passers-by. He was also said to be able to leap over trains and up buildings. Another rumored character at the time was concerningly called... Razorblade Man. Oh, jeez. Who was said to slash at victims with razors attached to his fingers. It's like a sort of a proto-Wolverine, but not at all. Um, hopefully a just a rumor. like Freddy Krueger a little bit. More like Freddy Krueger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. But ultimately, Prack was less a public menace and more a heroic figure battling against and standing in resistance to fascists in general and Nazis in particular. And there's actually a great animated short from the period in which Perak, uh revealed in the story to be the heroic persona of a chimney sweep, uh, generally messes up things for the Nazis in Prague. Nice. And the whole thing can be viewed online for free. If anyone's interested, I'll have the link with the episode. But yeah, that's my other little little chunk for today. Oh, I love it. I'm so glad a little to more. hear a little more from our friend Jack. Yeah, I've been missing... I've, I wished at the time that I could find more stories to make that more of a consistent thing. Uh, but, we got you a know, number of updates, especially when he moved to the yeah. U.S. for a while there. That was yeah, fun. yeah, it took his, his uh, U.S. holiday. Yes. Friend of the show, Jordan, had hoped to hear us say the famous phrase, Ha-ha! Again, and Ha-ha! now you have an excuse for that. And there, there it is. Let us never forget... Spring Hill Jack leaping into space, <laughs> freezing solid, and re-entering. <laughs> to land in, I believe, India. Yes, where he scratched <laughs> Another one of the caused up- mass hysteria. Yep. And, uh, yeah. yeah. So that's just some highlights of things we really enjoyed talking about in the last hundred episodes. Go figure. Specifically, these topics were in, let's see, my weird Egyptian and Hindu temple in the Grand Canyon was episode 97, so pretty damn recently. Yep. Your uh, look at ancient Egyptian pyramids as power sources, or, or power plants, rather. Exactly. Episode 66. Timeless cool. Yes. And then uh, my first reference to ghouls and crawlers and stuff, they've come up a lot because I love them. But the first time I mentioned that was episode 10. And oh, then wow. lastly, of course, our introduction to spring Jack in all his glory, episode 22. Yes, indeed. Get so if jacked. you're a new listener, we will link to all the episodes in the description, um, which is only useful to you, I guess, if you're in a browser. Otherwise, check them out <laughs> in your podcatcher of choice. Yes, indeed. And uh, thank you all for joining us for our new zeroth episode. That's right. Now three-digit podcast, which is very exciting. We'll hope you all stick with us for the next hundred episodes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll be we'll be there. But yeah, this was a lot of fun, and we'll look forward to catching up with you guys next week. Uh, not sure what topic. Not sure what Ooh, time. Let's uh, <laughs> yeah, not not entirely clear when it's going to come out because we've been having a lot of stuff going on. Um, Plus, we're now in Corona world. Fr- yeah, that's a whole fun thing. A good time to support us on Patreon as uh, at least half of this show's hosts are currently unemployed. Yes. Fun employed because you get to make this show. Yeah. No money. <laughs> For free. <laughs> For free. Yeah. Don't know when it's going to come out quite yet. Hopefully in a week's time and it'll be a cool thing and you'll hear it and you'll like it and we'll be there. And until then. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>